and welcome to What Editors Want. I'm Philip Connor and this is the podcast where I interview a different editor each week. This week, my guest is Hannah Westland, publisher at Serpent's Tale. Serpent's Tale are the literary imprint of the amazing profile books. They're the publishers of things like We Need to Talk About Kevin, like Lionel Shriver, and Karen J. Fowler's Man Booker Shortlist, that we're all completely beside ourselves. Hannah joined me to talk about books like Alex Nathan's The Warlow Experiment and the literary phenomenon that was The Essex Serpent by Sarah Perry. We're also going to be talking about Essie Ujwin, author of the Booker Shortlist at Washington Black, and how that one book helped Hannah transition from her life as a literary agent into running Serpent's Tale. As always, stay tuned until the end for a preview of next week's episode, and enjoy. Hello, Hannah. Hi, lovely to be here. Um, I was going to get us to get you to start by just telling us, for anyone who's not aware about Serpent's Tale, what you guys do generally. Sure. Well, Serpent's Tale was founded in the sort of mid-80s by somebody called Pete Ayrton, who felt that British publishing at the time was um, really not very interested or not interested enough in what was happening around the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a linguist and a great um, sort of internationally minded and quite radical person and still is. Um, reti- he retired a few years ago. Uh, so he set up Serpent's Tale to really try to showcase um, a huge range of writing from all over the world that wasn't really being translated into English at the time and wasn't sort of finding a platform here. So um, over the next couple of decades, he built a reputation for being an incredibly brave and incredibly bold and unusual publisher who was finding really kind of seminal works from France, from Latin America, as well as finding American writers who hadn't, who weren't sort of traditionally published here. He found a lot of interesting crime writers from America. Um, and he was also always very committed to publishing non-white writers, so the, mm. the list was all, always had a kind of sense of diversity about it. So um, about, I'm going to get my dates wrong, but about uh, 12 years ago, Serpent's Tale was bought by Profile Books. Profile is an independent publisher, which um, up until that point had been an entirely a non-fiction publisher. Um, and they bought Serpent's Tale, and Serpent's Tale became the fiction imprint of Profile, essentially. Right. Um, and then um, I joined in 2012. Um, at that point, um, Serpent's Tale was still an incredibly international list. And what we have tried to do over the last seven years since I've been here is to um, hold on to that identity that we have as a publisher that looks for writers all over the world. But what I've also tried to do, which I think... Um, we maybe hadn't been doing so much historically was try to really build up our list of homegrown mm. writers. Mm. So there were a few amazing writers that Serpent's Tale had published um, back in the day. Serpent's Tale was the first publisher to publish Column to Bean. Wow. Um, we were the um, David Peace's first publisher. Mm. We still have some of his books on our backlist. So there were some English language or British um, or Irish writers who were on the list, but there weren't very many of them. Right, that and wasn't your kind of It wasn't the, the main priority. And I felt very strongly that um, <clears throat> while I really wanted to continue to publish translation and American writing, having a list of writers whom you work very closely with, 
develop yourself and also have on the ground to promote mm. is something absolutely crucial for any list to thrive in the current market, which is sort of more and more difficult if you don't have people that you can actually work with all of the time. Right. Um, so do you mean by doing uh, numerous books with the same people, but also having them to do events and festivals exactly. and things like that? Exactly, yeah. yeah. If you have a, an international writer, you're going to get them maybe two or three days a year if they yeah. come over, if they come over. Sure. But with a British writer... You know, you can call on them all year round to do <laughs> stuff with you. Exactly, exactly. And also, I just, you know, I think that having that range where we... I, I've always been interested in, in writers from the country that I'm from who are writing about us and who we are and where we come from as much as I'm interested in mm. what's going on in the rest of the mm. world and as much as I'm interested in fiction being able to, you know, being universal. So I think trying to continue to have that range was something that we felt... Um, very strongly was how we took Serpent's Tale into the future. Great, and I guess we're going to see that with some of the books we come on to talk yeah. about. There's a nice mix. But how did you get into books or into publishing originally? I was very lucky. I think most people will tell you about... Or it's very common in publishing for it to be sort of very, very difficult until you get your lucky break, and yes. everyone has that lucky break story. Yeah. That sentence of uh, I was lucky is... Yes, uh, is a, yeah, very <laughs> familiar. I mean, I was sort of doubly lucky, I suppose, in the sense that my lucky break was sort of my first break. Um, so I had done an English degree at Leeds University. Um, God, I finished, I left university almost 20 years ago now and I'd sort of floated around a bit afterwards and really, really wanted to work in publishing. Didn't know anyone who worked in publishing, mm. didn't know how publishing was structured, didn't know that there were publishers and literary agents and scouts and other yeah. things. All I knew was that there were publishers. So I wrote to all the publishers I could who were advertising for any job going um, and wrote to some who weren't advertising for anything and I think I got an interview at Mills and Boone which I didn't wow. get um, thankfully and I had an interview <laughs> at Ebury to be a publicist, publicity assistant which I didn't get um, and then I heard that there were these things called literary agents and at the time this was in 2001 I think most literary agents didn't have websites but you could go to the library and get the writers and artists yearbook yeah. out of the library which is still a which is still a really in, in a useful tool um, so I went and got it out and it listed every literary agency in London and mm. so I wrote a form letter to all of them saying I really want to work in publishing can I come and be an assistant yeah. for you or, or oh apparently people do work experience can I come and do work yeah, experience I just didn't know that any of that was a thing it's funny isn't it I mean because um, in some ways I don't know that publishing's got all that much better at explaining it how it works yeah. yeah and like I mean I did an MA in publishing and uh that you know and most people on day one in that were still yeah. figuring out what yeah. these different I don't yeah. know infrastructures were yeah and I think actually from what I remember from what little careers guidance there was at my <laughs> university I think it might have been that you got one session with someone in your third year who right. or something very very little and my memory of it is that if I did say in that session I'm quite interested in working in publishing the message that I got was that's really difficult mm. it's really hard to get in don't, almost don't try yeah and I think that would be different at other universities who yeah. might say not only should you try but actually my book is published by somebody sure. at Jonathan Cape yeah. do you want me to give you their I name I got a good so, piece of advice actually from a, just from one of my English lecturers and um, there was in my West of Ireland university which I can tell you there's not many publishers yeah. around there or if they are it's kind of one or two people operations yeah. um, and there was actually an MA in publishing and literature at the university so it was incredibly nice of her to recommend that I go somewhere else yeah, yeah, um, yeah. and 
uh, their university, they use the university in London as their um, external right. examiners or whatever, right. which was just, a, like, again, it seems so um, obvious in retrospect that, of course, you'd go to London or these things, but it wasn't at the time How at would all. You know? yeah. I didn't know where these things came yeah. from. Yeah. Um, I think the literary agent's route is really interesting as yeah. well. Um, you know, I, I'm sure you do too. You often get approached by people who want to work in publishing or who want to work in editorial specifically. Yeah. yeah. And well, literary- that's, yeah. I mean, I thought that I wanted to work in editorial because that's often, if you're an English graduate, that's the sort of obvious sure. um, aspiration. But then when I found out about literary agents and found out what they did, I realised yeah. a, a lot of that job is very editorial. Yes. And also I thought, well, no one at publishing is, no one in publishing is giving me a job. Why don't I try the agents? Mm. So, so I wrote to them all and I was extremely lucky because um, Deborah Rogers, who was the founder of Rogers, Coleridge and White, who sadly passed away a few years ago, she was probably the messiest person in the history <laughs> of the world um, and her desk was kind of five years deep with paperwork everything got lost the moment it went into her office she was also the best agent ever but yes. um, I wrote to her and the day that my letter arrived her assistant had just handed in his resignation so she opened her post and got my CV and rang me because her assistant had just resigned if he'd resigned a day before or yeah. two days later, my letter would wow. probably have been lost. Um, so that was my stroke of luck, really, was my letter landing on her desk on the right day. And then she was a very wonderful and really informal person who rang me up and asked me to come in. And I think she'd found one or two other CVs that had landed on her desk because she was always getting them. And um, she invited me in for an interview and it consisted of talking about books I, I they didn't have a website at the time RCW so I walked into the office not knowing who they represented and mm. the walls were lined with Kazuo Ishiguro mm. Peter Carey Ian McEwan <laughs> Angela Carter it's just about as intimidating I mean, as you can get Hanif Qureshi yeah. everybody you could possibly yeah. imagine which was just overwhelming but she was somebody who just sat you down in an armchair and said so tell me what you like to read and Mm. that was my interview and then at the very end of the interview she said do you know how to do email and stuff like that and I said yeah more or less and 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 that was all that was so that was how I got my first job and I worked as her assistant for a few years and then continued to assist another agent David Miller there who was also really brilliant um and then gradually started becoming an agent myself and taking on some of my own projects. And because it was a very literary agency and really valued trying to find the best the best of the best writing of all kinds, they were very supportive of me really taking my time to try and find writers who might not necessarily command huge advances at first mm-hmm. and so might not... Uh, I might not be bringing in a huge amount of money to the agency, but I would potentially be bringing in the next generation of writers who are going to have really long, successful, interesting careers. Mm-hmm. So that was a huge privilege to be able to do that, and not not everywhere you get that no. kind of space. And I was also very supported by Deborah and by David in doing that because I'd worked with them for a long time. Um, and when did you make then the step into publishing? So I moved here seven years ago, um, and... My route here was really thanks to an author who I had been representing at RCW. We worked with a Canadian agent called Anne McDermott and she represented Essie Adujan at the time, the Canadian writer who, um, whose book Half-Blood Blues was um, shortlisted for the Booker and the Orange Prize um, about eight years ago. And I sold that book to Serpent's Tale. Right. And then it was very successful. And then the Serpent's Tale publisher decided she was leaving 
And so through selling that book to Profiles and Serpent's Tale, I'd come to the attention of the MD here who then said, why don't you come and do this job? And then had to go through a rigorous interview process. But it was was quite a leap of faith um, for me and for them because I'd never worked in a publishing house and I was Mm. going from being an agent to a publisher role as well I wasn't coming to be an editor I was coming to run the list Mm. so um, there was a lot that I was nervous I wasn't going to be able to do or didn't know how to do but really um, there are processes that you have to learn and practical things that you have to learn but the 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 feeling of building a list and looking for the best and developing work and committing to writers over the long time that's over the long term that's something that you learn as an agent and Mm. so actually that skill is very transferable. I think also working for an independent publisher where we're not always in on the big auctions, we're always looking for people that maybe haven't been spotted by other people. Yeah. You learn to do that as an agent. So yeah, that skill has been really, skills. really useful. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's a good uh, reason to start talking about one of yeah. our first books, which is Washington Black. Yeah. So I imagine that this was a natural continuation of yes. your relationship. Yeah, so this is lovely. So Essie's um, novel after Half-Blood Blues, which took quite a long time to arrive, was Washington Black, which is this magnificent novel about um, a slave who escapes from a a sugar plantation in Barbados and um, ends up on a sort of extraordinary adventure around Mm. the world. So having been Essie's um, UK agent, when I moved to Serpent's Tale, obviously I had a relationship with her already and therefore was able to quite straightforwardly acquire her next book, although it hadn't been written yet. Um, And then um, we waited for it to come in and it came in and... um, she has a very brilliant editor in Canada and a very brilliant editor in New York. Um, and between us, we all worked very closely with Essie over quite a long time editing the book. It's a big, complex, um, multi-layered book and it required um, quite a lot of structural and sort of creative editing, really, mm. which she really um, benefits from and sort of thrives on, I think. So it was a very interesting experience because it was a really sort of transatlantic multiple publisher um, effort and um, it was a wonderful publishing experience for us because we it had been a long gap between um, Half Blood Blues and this new book and while people really admired and loved her she had slightly drifted out of people's awareness and so the book was um, long-listed for the booker about a month before it was due to be published here. So it was the wow, most brilliant start. <laughs> and it was just before the American publication and the Canadian publication. So it kind of set us sail on this brilliant journey, mm. which um, uh, one of the high points of which was being shortlisted for the booker. Yeah, I mean, amongst many other awards. And so she won the Giller Prize. Um, she I've got um, finalist for the Carnegie Medal here, yes. the Rogers Writer Trust yeah. Fiction Prize, um, you know, New York uh, Times Top 10 Book of the Year yeah. 2018. Yeah. That's quite a list amazing. of accolades. Absolutely amazing. <laughs> and the, the paperback came out last month um, and has been doing really, really well. Waterstones mm. have been really supportive of her all the way through, which has been Incredible. fantastic. Um, and I just want to ask you, because usually, you know, when you think about um, buying to do the UK rights of a, yeah. of a you know, foreign language or American edition of things, which I'm, Serpent's Tale, I guess, do a lot of, it must be it's do, quite, yeah. quite different to be that involved that early yeah, with that th- many cuts. Yeah, <laughs> I think if it hadn't, if we hadn't have had that pre-existing relationship with SC where actually we had the longest relationship with her than any of the other publishers. Right. So her Canadian 
publisher well the Canadian situation was a bit complicated her Canadian editor had been with her for a long time but moved the American publisher came in only for this book so we were sort of as close to her as we might have been to a British author in a way even though she lives on the west coast of Canada Mm -hmm. Um, usually when we buy an American or a Canadian book the editing is nearly all done by the American by the um, North American editor we might contribute a little bit but we very much um, take a back seat Mm. um and so it was different in that respect and it's it's I think when you do have that deeper engagement with the text it's more satisfying it usually gives you a closer relationship with the author but it is more time consuming as well and so Mm -hmm. one of and one of the advantages of of doing American buy-ins is that you can balance that slightly less time consuming work with the books that Mm. really do require you to do a lot of editing and to um, spend more time on Yeah, and had you um, been doing a lot of that type (coughs) of work while you were um, an agent as well developmental developmental editing work yeah absolutely I mean I think you have to if you're you're an agent who's trying to build a list of writers particularly um, literary writers or any kind of writers really and they're at the beginning of their careers they're usually people that are going to need some guidance Mm. and some development at the beginning and I think increasingly editors are do expect books to come in when they're submitted at to a certain kind of level of yeah. polish and i guess if you're anyone out there with the writer and artist yearbook flicking through and wondering there's an endless list of agents here which one's from me you know you want someone who's going to engage with you yeah, in that kind of commit, work yeah and it is a it's a big commitment as an agent because you're doing all that work without knowing whether the book is going to sell Absolutely. Or not. and if it doesn't sell you don't get paid the writer doesn't get paid either but neither yeah. do you so you really have to if you take something on and, and make that investment you do really believe in it and mm. I think that is um all the really good agents that I know do that kind of work um, mm. and but it, which isn't to say that editors don't do it as well no but um, it is you know a bit like going back to I mean my, I was in the same shoes as you and thinking about getting into publishing but having never even heard yeah. of literary agents that is a you know a career that what lots of people are looking for in yeah. publishing actually it offers yeah and I think it's I mean it is interesting I think you're right that publishing doesn't still doesn't do a good enough job of advertising itself and what it is and how I think we've done a lot of work um on how people can actually access jobs and how people can get jobs and come in if they you know in terms of doing away almost entirely with unpaid internships and there being a lot more funding and that mm. kind of thing but you have to find out about it to Absolutely. know that it's there so yeah, that is the, the question of whether we're doing enough to make people make sure people find us mm. is is an interesting one I think. Mm. And so from, um, you know, Canadian writer you'd worked yeah. for a long time to Sarah Perry. Yeah. So The Essex Serpent is a book that anyone who has been in a bookshop for the yeah. last, whatever is it, 18 months yeah. or something now, will have come across. It's it a bit more than that now, yeah. It's been yeah. quite simply everywhere, kind yeah. of real phenomenon over the last couple of years. Yeah. How did that book come about? Had you Was this your first, did you publish Sarah's previous we book? We did, yeah. So The Essex Serpent was her second book. Her first book, After Me Comes the Flood, is a very, very beautiful literary novel, quite strange book about a bunch of um, unusual people stuck in a remote <laughs> house sort of out in the East Anglian coast um, and it did really well actually but it, it so it, it really came to the attention of reviewers and mm. Waterstones were very keen on her and for a literary debut it, it far exceeded our expectations and it was um, it was really really a nice success so we had that relationship with her established and we knew we wanted to continue to publish her and so when the Essex Serpent came in it was a much bigger, much more exuberant book that we mm. instantly knew had the potential to be really big. 
Um, and we were able to sign it up and work with her on it very simply because she was already our author and we yeah. didn't... Um, so, I mean, again, it is that nurturing thing. Yeah. And I read that, there's a brilliant Guardian review where it talks about the first book and yeah. all the things that you really like, but coming to real fruition yeah. in the second exactly. book. exactly, yeah. Um, and lots of people, you know, people always bring out Hilary Mantel as well, for an example <laughs> of this, as someone who had lots and lots many, of books many out books before. Many, many books before, yeah. yeah. And, it, and, and something that, if you can, that's what, if as a writer, what you're looking for in a home, I guess. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, what we really want to offer people here is a home over the long term if mm. they if they want to develop and and they are willing to kind of engage with us and and let us help them sort of build what they're doing mm. um then that can really work so sarah's i mean the most hugely satisfying experience for us and for her i hope because we really you know we worked with her from the beginning and then when when the essex serpent took off it felt like something that we could all share in because we'd really all been a part of trying to make it happen yeah. and because we're a small list and we didn't i mean uh, as the years go on we have more writers who are known and who are successful um, we were we were really able to put the Essex Serpent at the absolute front of our list with no hesitation because we knew it was the biggest book that we'd had for a very long time and mm. that we, so we threw everything at it um, and and it paid off and sometimes that pays off and sometimes it doesn't I can't yeah. you know, I can't say we had the seat you know we sure. had a magic formula mm. um, a lot of things went right for us and it was the the right book for the right time yeah. and, and we got the right support and of course but, yeah if you go back and look at any publishers books that they've chosen as their lead titles there'll yeah. be some that did fulfill the expectation and some that yeah. for whatever reason didn't and likewise yeah. things that weren't chosen yeah but I guess this was obviously a natural fit from the outset with the yeah. inclusion of the word serpents in it you know yes, it made exactly. no doubt about it felt it like it had to be it was it was meant to be <laughs> Um, and of course went on to like incredible success so Sunday Times number one bestseller book of the year and fiction book of the year at British Book Awards I mean I, I won't go into the list because we'll be here yeah. all day but kind of astronomically successful yeah um, so we've got the Warlow experiment which yes. is by Alex Snape. yeah so that is another um, really lovely story and like exactly the kind of um, <clears throat> situation that I find incredibly rewarding and exciting so Alex is a brilliant writer who had a couple of books published with Parthian Press who a very good small Welsh publisher and they um, had some very nice reviews and some attention but didn't really break out so her third novel um, The Warlow Experiment all of her writing is um, historical she's particularly interested in the 18th century I, at some point she might move out of the 18th century but that's where she's hung around most mm. of the time and this book is set at the end of the 18th century and Alex is sort of deeply knowledgeable about that time in history and this book um, was inspired by a tiny story that she saw in something called the Annual Register which is um, these, these sort of leather bound annuals that you could buy throughout the 18th and 19th century which had um, sort of all sorts of ephemera, news stories they were kind of like almanacs of the year and you could kind of get them at the end of the year and the one from 1797 that she had had this little story about a very... Um, and it, a landowner in rural Wales who wanted to do an experiment in solitary confinement to see what effect um, it would have on someone if they lived completely on their own with no human contact for seven years. So he put an advert out in his local village saying, if anyone's willing to live in my cellar for seven years with, with clothes and books and food every day, but no human contact, at the end of the experiment, I'll give them £50 a year for the rest of their life, which at the time was, was sort of thousands and thousands. Sure. So the, the story in the annual register was simply that this had happened. He'd found a farm labourer who was willing to do it and the experiment had been underway for three years. But there was no more information wow. about whether it 
reached seven year conclusion, what happened, etc. So Alex tried to find out if it really happened, any mm-hmm. historical document, and um, she didn't find anything, which was sort of the best thing. She yeah, could it's for, lovely it uh, open ended. She could make it all up. Yeah, just I always from this find that um, that in, about anything set <coughs> historically that um, you know, you know, obviously you have facts to draw on, but if, if anything that is kind of, you can turn into something else really exactly. gives you way more yeah options. it just gives you so much creative freedom so she's written this brilliant extraordinary book about this very eccentric um, reclusive landowner um, who is obsessed with horticulture and not very good at communicating with humans <laughs> and this semi-illiterate um, farm labourer who is locked in his cellar and the book is sort of narrated by this sort of cultured man above and this man trapped below and um, so it's a really interesting study of the psychology of this experiment, but it's also just a wonderful um, account of that period of history. And there's, mm. there's so that, and it becomes also extremely dramatic. And you know, there's an escape and a murder and a love story and mm. all sorts of other things. So it's a really rich, brilliant book. But w- when it was submitted to us, I mean, this is from a sort of publishing point of view. I think what is interesting about this book, and it's going to be exactly the sort of thing that I get really excited about. Um, it was submitted by the agent, um, and it seemed obviously to me such a good idea, but structurally it wasn't perfect. It needed a little bit of work. And she was not a new author. She'd had, she had a, a track record of good books that hadn't sold. So she flew under the radar, and nobody else picked up on how good this book was and that we could acquire it with no competition, which meant that we paid a modest advance and we were able to buy world rights. But it seemed to me completely obvious how much potential it had. Yeah. It just needed a little bit of polishing to uncover that. It's funny that, isn't it? When yeah. the right books land <coughs> and you can just see it. Yeah. Um, and you can't believe it, no yeah. one else can. And quite. I'm sure that if it had been a debut um, with no tr- no history or, mm. you know, a very young author or something, it would have been it would have been more obvious to people. So we acquired it and then we did um, a decent amount of editorial work with the author Um, which I did with a younger editor here because we're also always trying to bring on the younger editors here and help them to learn to edit um, along with us. And um, we ended up with a really, really tight, brilliant manuscript, which we then sold on to America to Doubleday Random House for a really good deal. Um, Sent out our proofs. We now have quotes from CJ Sansom, Sally Magnuson, Hilary Mantel is a fan of hers from earlier work. Um, and the book is shaping up really, really nicely. Waterstones have decided to support it and take a special edition. We have book at bedtime on Radio 4. So lots of things are falling into place. In some respects, it, it fits into um, that space for sort of really good storytelling, historical fiction, which has really thrived in recent years. The Essex Serpent is an example of that. And there's always one of those books riding high in the charts. I think it, um, it will be really interesting to see what happens with this book because it's, it's a it's a bit weirder than those books. It's a bit mm. darker. And but it does have that like really lovely hook to it. Totally. And I'm a tall yeah. sucker again, and I'm sure publicity department's eyes light up when there's a, there's well, there's, a story. Well, it's so fun it. to pitch, right? Because yeah, you just yeah. tell the story that I told to you, yeah. and then instantly you can see I know, people I'm, going, I'm sold already. What? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll make sure I give oh, you a copy you. before you leave. Um, 
but that's interesting <coughs> what you said that if it had been a debut you know perhaps you would have had some stiffer competition yeah. to get it yeah. that's quite interesting because it is a, a narrative you come across in publishing quite a lot with people who've had the degree yeah. of success with getting something published but unfortunately it hasn't quite hit the commercial charts yeah. and how that um, totally does for better or for worse influence people's decision making about their work kind of going forward yeah I, I think it, I mean it definitely it the whole machine is set up to sort of celebrate the the kind of the brand new debut everything yeah. that you can say about this author is new and that continues to be the case but I do still think you know like The Essex Serpent for example I think probably 80% of people think The Essex Serpent was Sarah Perry's first novel because mm. they hadn't heard of her sure. her first novel and so if you and Alex Nathan is almost the, her first two books were very very quietly published you know well published but but um, so she's new to all in a different so way she's new so as long as you can I think we try to work around that by saying if this person is new and you haven't really heard of them before it doesn't matter if they're 25 or 60 or mm. it's their second book or their third book for um, it's new. It's the it's the first time you've ever come across yeah, them. So let's treat that. them as new. Yeah, it's like newness is almost like a shortcut to excitement. Yeah. You know? Whereas you can definitely engineer that with yeah. other ways. Yeah. You know, the, the, yeah. Because the idea of that book is so yeah. good. But even like what you're, I'm sure that will appeal to lots of people just hearing that there that there was someone just trying to find the right story yeah. or the right fit. And then but you another good example, and we didn't actually put this on the list of books to talk about, so I won't spend long on it, but. Uh, my colleague Rebecca Grabe um, bought a brilliant American book a few years ago called We're All Completely Beside Ourselves by Karen Joy Fowler. Yeah. And she is um, a very, very distinguished, well-established um, writer who was very much mid-career, had written multiple novels, some of which had been published here and done really well, some of which hadn't. Mm. Um, and she wrote this new book, and because her sales track record was so uneven she just flew under the radar and none of the big publishers wanted to take her mm. on but it was the book was so brilliant that it was obvious to us that it didn't really matter what the history was because this book was so outstanding and almost because she'd been so up and down it's sort of people don't remember that no, deeply really. actually no. and I think we maybe overthink that stuff sometimes absolutely. so that book was an absolutely phenomenal success from one of the most successful books we've ever published sure. because it was just such a good book and it was so different and so fresh and so special we knew that we could make a big deal of it and it didn't it just didn't matter what the author's history was I remember so, I that, so many people telling me yeah. forcing copies of <coughs> um, but it's interesting because I mean that is what you have uh, the, the danger of publishing which is yeah. when so much of it is opinion and subjective yeah. the only data or kind of hard science you have is retrospective is what they've yeah. done in the past yeah. and sometimes that's really helpful yeah. um, but sometimes it's not yeah. um, and if, you know that's kind of trying to get around that sometimes is things that lovely places like this can do that well and I think I mean you have to of course you have to you have to be realistic about the market and you mm. have to try and look around when you're trying to decide whether to do something you have to make comparisons and try and think about what it's like and where it's going to go and if it isn't like other things what is it and is that an advantage or a disadvantage of course you have to take all that stuff into consideration but I think what you also do and I, and I think everywhere does this we you know big or small if you get a room full of people in your acquisitions meeting that say everything's stacked against this book but it's so amazing mm. let's do it that happen that still happens in publishing and that's Absolutely. what makes it really magical and that can that and that is enough to drive a publication to success mm. you know i mean then it still might not be successful sure. but you know the publisher will do everything they can yeah that level it. of excitement is contagious yeah it totally informs yeah. everything you're doing like even the yeah. co i remember the cover for that it was so vibrant yes it? exactly um really yeah. encouraged that yeah. kind of feeling 
Um, so the next <coughs> thing I'm going to ask you to talk about is Hollow in the Land by mm. James Clark. So this is another book that's coming out later this year? It's actually coming out next spring. Okay, so that's just um, early 2020. Yeah, James Clark's an amazing um, young British writer. So he is a debut. <laughs> We've just been talking about everything that isn't a debut. Well, no, he's a, actually, no, he's not a debut. I'm really sorry. He's a de- this is his debut collection of short stories. Um, he's, I suppose I said he's a debut because his debut novel was published by Salt this year. Um, and has Still just fresh. been um, awarded a Betty Trask Award, wow. um, which is brilliant. And that novel is a brilliant, um, really immersive uh, book about the miners' strike in the 80s. It's sort of set in a um, town affected by the miners' strike. So I hadn't actually come across that novel, um, but uh, he his stories were sent to me by his agent and um they are i suppose an obvious comparison would be john mcgregor they're kind of um he james is from lancashire and he writes about that place these stories are all set in a um kind of small post-industrial town on the edge of sort of rural wild um valleys of lancashire but so they're kind of partly urban partly rural and they are just about people's lives in that town and some of them are um, some people are living extreme lives and some people are living quite modest lives and he just weaves in and out of these people's stories and so they're kind of tied together with sort of um, we've worked together editorially to try and sort of make them hang together as a yeah. piece and so then we're having a conversation about how we describe the book whether we describe it as stories or whether we describe it sure. as a novel but there's um, been lots of some things like that I remember that Donald Ryan book did a yeah. lot of that um and I remember there's a, our, people who've listened to this podcast will be sick of hearing me talk about Pond, which is a Claire Louise yeah, Bennett yeah, section yeah, of stories. Yeah, and was it a novel and was yeah, it a story? Exactly. But there's also, I mean, uh, <coughs> what, there's also, you know, the things factor into that that you wish you didn't have to, which is making it applicable to certain prizes well, and all those sure. kinds of things. Well, sure. And, you know, David Zaloy was a really good example because mm. All That Man Is was published as a novel, but. You know, many many people felt it was a collection of short stories, and mm. and it was shortlisted for the Booker. And I sort of think I don't mind what it was because it was so good, I and know. it got that far. That hooray, it got that far. Yeah. Um, but it is it it does. If you can say that something is not only a collection of stories or is something a bit different, it does open other avenues which are helpful. So mm. I think it is an interesting conversation to have. So we're sort of in the middle of that conversation Great. to work out how we present it. But he's, in any case, I guess he is a writer who is just, I love, I just, line by line, I think he's really, really special and he's writing about Englishness and, and a certain a certain regional place, but his stories have also got that kind of really lovely um, calm universality that remind me a little bit of some of the great American short story writers and I've also signed up a novel from him so there will be um, in two years two years time or so there will be a novel coming down the line so this comes back to trying to build long term relationships with people mm. where you know you take on one book but that's with a view to kind of working much further into the future right. and you know a big he has a, quite a big ambitious idea for a novel for the next book which feels like it could um, really take off great so. well, I can't wait to see what you do with this yeah. one and the last book I'm going to ask you to talk yeah. about is completely different from the other <coughs> four books um, this is a book of cat poems yeah um, featuring everyone from I mean just glancing Elizabeth Bishop Ezra Pound William Carlos Williams W.B. Yates yes so this um, is um, it's a, a so I, w- I wanted to talk about this book because I think it's a good example of how in publishing we um we have to publish enduring works of literature that we think really matter to the culture and we also have to spot commercial opportunities when we see them and um, 
build you know we're 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 businesses that need to be profitable mm. and um sometimes there are really fun things that you can do that just um that you know can work commercially and this was something that would both had literary integrity and a lot of commercial potential so um we work a lot with new directions who are very very brilliant american publisher who are extremely literary and have published sort of pretty much every translated um, author who is part of the literary pantheon of the 20th century and a lot of poetry over the years. And we buy quite a few books from them, but they published in America last year this book of cat poems, which was mainly from their backlist. And it was a sort of the silliest thing they'd ever done. Most of their stuff is kind of incredible, you know, Laszlo Krasn Hawkeye, and he's amazing. And we thought, actually, people love cats <laughs> people love poems maybe at christmas people would love a poems. book of a book but not just you know not silly poet but actual real poets writing yeah. poems about cats so we bought the rights to the collection from them and then we had to clear all the rights ourselves and do our own little edition we published that um last october and it was a real success for us at christmas to the point where this coming autumn we're doing dog poems um, which my great colleague Leonora is putting together as we speak. Um, It'd be interesting to put them in competition. Yeah, well, it is going to be very interesting because we sort of feel that the kind of literary plus cat market is bigger than literary plus dog, but we might be wrong about that. Yeah, for some reason I think that as well. But I know, I'm but sure we might. Be people out there yeah. screaming that and that's dogs not the are case. very fashionable now. Yeah, cats are fashionable too, but dogs are are really in. So yeah. maybe that's. Maybe that's going to I work. was reading, um, so we just published a great um, anthology of working class writers and Kathy yeah. Ransom brings a piece in it yeah. about playing darts and being an, yes. a, 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 yeah. a darts champ. Yeah. And she was talking, she uses, um, there's a, darts basically don't feature in literature is what her point is. Right. Apart from a brief mention in the Sylvia Plath letter. Right. But I just think, like, there are, I love this idea of taking seemingly yeah, <laughs> piece and finding yeah. that actually here's a yeah. whole list of people who yeah. found them really great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll have to keep an eye on the dogs we can. Yes, yeah. Okay, so the last question I'm going to ask you is, that was you as an agent, editor, publisher. Yes. What about as a reader? What Have you have you read anything recently that you've really, really loved that oh. you wished you would have gotten your hands on? Well, there's something I suppose I could cite as something that... Well, there are three, there are three books that I read in this new year that have all I found totally brilliant, but they're all books that I never would have published because they're kind of outside of my remit. Does that How, still apply? Yeah, Shall absolutely. I'll whiz through them. Okay. One is Philippa Perry's book, the book that you wish your parents had read and your children will be grateful that you did or your children will thank you for reading. Yes. Which is... Um, it's hard to describe it because if you say it's kind of a parenting psychotherapy book, it sounds sort of awful, but it's just a really, really calm book. Um, that makes you think about how you how your family works whether or not you have I have a young child so for me I found it very um, informative and with and non-judgmental um, but it, it's actually even if you don't have a child it's sort of about your own family experiences and how you how those shape you and mm. I found it just really affecting and clear and the package is beautiful the the publishing is clever I just really admired it as a mm. bit of publishing it's quite nice to have that experience as a reader and not feel like you've missed out as a publisher yeah. because as you say yeah, it's, it's, it's as... out of my remit yeah. yeah and then the other two books which are also non-fiction and this is ter- a terrible suggestion that there's no good fiction out there and no. it's maybe also partly that I read non-fiction almost as a break one is um, a book called Bad Blood which is about uh, it's um is it a business thriller? I don't know really how you would describe it. It's published by Picador. It's a um, the story of 
Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos, which was this um, Silicon Valley startup that claimed to be able to do blood tests oh, from the yes. prick of a finger, yeah, yeah. raised billions of dollars of um, funding, but never actually got the technology to work. And it's it's like the most extraordinary thriller about a sociopath mm. who kind of is driving an out-of-control lorry that wow. is about to crash. It's just totally, totally brilliant. And the other book is a bit like that, um, but about a different kind of disaster, which was the book that won the Bailey Gifford last year, which is um, the history of Chernobyl by Serhi Plotky, I think he's called, a Ukrainian-American historian. And it's the story of Chernobyl and mm. what happened. But again, it reads like a thriller because mm. it is like moment by moment how close we got to nuclear apocalypse. Yeah. But what, uh, I mean, that event like just uh, captured... Your imagination yeah. at the time and like yeah. again it was waiting all these years for someone, someone to, to tell, the story. tell it in the yeah. right way yeah um, and I think I guess with Bad Blood and Chernobyl what both of those books have which appealed to me is genuinely extraordinary storytelling mm. which I guess comes back to fiction in the sense that I think you know the best books just grab you with the story and don't let you go whether mm. they're whether they're making it up or whether it is real mm. well um, i guess that's the nicest note we'll have to end yeah. on um thank you very much Anne. my pleasure join me next week when my guest will be tony white founder of piece of paper press piece of paper press have been going since 1994 and are designed as a low-tech sustainable publishing platform that uses literally a single piece of paper to publish a book tony is also the author of one of my favorite books of recent years the fountain in the forest published by Faber and faber it is a pulp crime novel that also forces tony to use the answers from the guardians quick crossword from 1985 in order to tell the story don't miss it if you'd like to stay in touch with the show you can find me on twitter or what editors want pod at gmail.com thank you